Father, as we come to your word today, we come eager to meet you and to hear from you and to receive instruction from you. And we come to your word hungry for our daily bread. And so we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with the bread of life today in order that we may live for your glory, for the glory of Christ. Help us, Lord, to understand this text and to do more than understand it, to do more than just know it, but to yield ourselves in obedience to you because of it. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. So today we will be doing two things. We took a few weeks off from our study of Genesis, uh, but we're going to be jumping back into our study of Genesis today, but we're also going to be celebrating what is known as Palm Sunday. And like I said, there is an overlap, uh, a pretty significant overlap between Genesis 17 and what we see a week before Jesus was crucified as he entered into the gates of the city of Jerusalem. One of the themes of our study of Genesis thus far has been God's establishment of covenants. God is a God who establishes covenants. We saw him first establish a covenant with Adam when he was in the garden. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man, talking about Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That was God's covenant with Adam. It was a covenant of works. It was dependent upon Adam uh, maintaining his part of what God had ordained. Then we saw God establish a covenant with Noah, a covenant of grace, in which God vowed to never again destroy the earth with a flood as he had in the days of Noah. And that's what we saw back in chapters 6 to 9. It was kind of bracketed in there. It started when God uh, called Noah to do what, what he would do, to build the, the boat, to build the ark, and it was culminated, it was uh, completed or established in chapter 9. And as we've been going along uh, through the story of Abraham, or Abram, we've seen uh, covenants there as well. In in chapter 15, we saw God establish what came to be known as the Abrahamic covenant, in which God promised to give Abraham an offspring and promised that his descendants would be as uncountable as the the stars in the sky, as uncountable as the grains of sand on the earth. But as we saw a few weeks ago, Two verses after God had established his covenant with Abram, two verses later, Abram broke his covenant with his wife. He sinned. He took matters into his own hands. Rather than trusting in God's promises to bring about a descendant, his wife had this idea that maybe Abram was supposed to have a descendant, but it wasn't supposed to come through her. And so Abram went along with it. He took Sarai's servant and apparently friend Hagar as his second wife upon his wife's advice, and he created an offspring with Hagar uh, named Ishmael. And of course, this created a whole bunch of relational disharmony, disunity, discord, dysfunction uh, within Abram's house. Of course, that's what we would expect. That's pretty predictable that if if you go along with a plan like that, there's going to be some strife. And so what happened is Hagar ended up uh, having disdain toward 
Sarai, and Sarai uh, didn't take too kindly to that. And Abram said, go ahead, she's your servant, do with her whatever you want. And so Sarai abuses her, abuses Hagar. Hagar runs away. She runs out into the wilderness uh, between Canaan and Egypt, where she is met by God and comes face to face with God and has an encounter with Him. And He sends her back. But he sends her back with the promise that the offspring that she had created with Abram would be blessed. God promised that the child's uh, inheritance, would, he, would, he would be the father of nations. He would, he would have a lot of descendants. And he instructed that the child's name was to be Ishmael. Genesis chapter 16 concluded with these words. Quote, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. He was 86 years old, okay? But what about the covenant? What about the promises that God had made to Abram in chapter 15? After what happened in chapter 16? What about the covenant? I mean, Abram went, kind of went awry there. He went, he went astray. He went with his own plans rather than letting God fulfill the promises that God had made. And as we, if you remember, when we were looking at the covenant that God established with Abram, we saw that there were three qualities of God's covenants. First of all, they are established by God alone. It's not that God sits down with man across the table from each other with a piece of paper between them and they draw out a, a set of terms and conditions and they negotiate and, and all that kind of stuff. That's not the way it works with God. No, God doesn't negotiate with anyone. It's established completely by God alone. Secondly, God's covenants are unbreakable. That is, they are irrevocable. That is, He never takes them back. He doesn't rescind on His covenants. He fulfills the promises that He makes. He doesn't change. The terms of His covenants don't change. Third and finally, they are established by the grace of God alone. It's not that they're established because mankind has deserved His covenants. It's not that mankind has earned His, his favor or His grace. If God's promises depended even the littlest bit on our faithfulness to God, His promises would never be fulfilled. Or, or maybe you could say the only promise that would, be, that, would, that would be left standing is His promise to execute justice upon sinners. But there's a question that gets raised at this point when you're talking about covenants. And I believe it's a good question. It's a, it's a question that should be asked. And the question is this. If God alone is sovereign, and if God alone is the one who is establishing the covenants with man, what role do human beings have in respect to the covenants between God and, and man? And there's a lot of very, very bad theology out there uh, that, that arises from this question because to some degree you can, you can do two things when you're talking about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You can give God too much sovereignty and, and then say man has no responsibility. Man doesn't have to do anything. It's entirely of grace and that results in what's called antinomianism. It means you, you, you don't have any law. There's nothing for you to obey because God is completely sovereign. The other mistake that you can make is you can think that God's sovereignty is too little and man's responsibility is too great. And from that, you get the heresy of Pelagianism, 
which is the idea that man is not so fallen that he cannot respond to God, that he's capable of doing some good when the Bible is clear that no one does good. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. So you need to find a balance between having too much sovereignty and too little sovereignty on God's behalf. The Bible does affirm God's absolute sovereignty over the covenants He establishes over salvation, but at the same time, here's where it gets tricky. Here's where you find some tension. Not only is God sovereign over it, but the Bible also affirms mankind's responsibility to turn to God in faith, to repent and turn to God and receive salvation. Now, one of the things that I like to do when we're talking about issues like this that get kind of tricky is turn to the creeds and confessions to see what the people who came before us have had to say about issues like this. And so one of the, one of the things, one of the creeds uh, and confessions, the confessions that I love to go to, is the London Baptist Confession of 1689. It's the one that I'm probably most in line with. Uh, and, and I'm not going to read you the, the old English version of it, but what I want to do is read a little part of a modern translation uh, of it to you. This is uh, chapter 3, article 1, talking about God's sovereign decree. It says, From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of Himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet, God did this in such a way that He is neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature, or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and His power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing His decree. So, to give you... Uh, uh, the, the, the Cliff Notes version of that. God either causes or allows everything which comes to pass to come to pass. And while uh, a, a creed or a confession is fallible because it's written by man, it's accurate to the extent that it reflects what the Bible teaches. And this is what the Bible, I believe, clearly teaches. So God is sovereign. God has sovereignly decreed all things, but at the same time, the tension is found in finding that man does have a moral responsibility to obey and submit to God. Abram disobeyed God when he was 86 years old. That's what we learned at the end of chapter 16. So what about the covenant? What has become of the covenant at this point, we're going to learn this immediately, the answer to this question immediately as we start looking at chapter 17. We'll start with verses 1 to 8, Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So one verse after we learn how old Abram was when Ishmael was born, we see that God was silent for 13 years toward Abram. Now, if you think about it, God had, had called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans 10 years before that happened. And so more time has passed since the last time he had an encounter with God than had passed between the time that God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and the time that Ishmael was born. Between the ages of 86 and 99, apparently nothing was said or done by God toward Abram. And that's not to say that he didn't sustain or, or, or bless Abram in some degree. I mean, every breath that we take is, is God's providence and God's blessing. So, of course, God did sustain Abram, but there was nothing like what we've seen in Abram's story so far. We've seen that God appeared to and called Abram back in chapter 11. He spoke to him again, uh, you know, early in chapter 15, but there were apparently no direct interactions that God and Abram had for 13 years after Abram had sinned so greatly. And so that means it's been 23 years since God initially called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now we see God introduce himself in this chapter, in this passage, in, in verse 1, he introduces himself in a new way to Abram here. It's not that this is a new name for God, but it's a new way that Abram would know God. He says, I am God Almighty. And that's a term that we see throughout the Old Testament. It, it, the Hebrew is El Shaddai. That name, El Shaddai, or, or God Almighty, focuses on God's power. It focuses on God's uh, incredible might or His, his all-powerfulness, His, his om, uh, omni, uh, omnipresence. It focuses on His sovereignty. It's a name that we see throughout the Old Testament that's ascribed to God. In fact, in the book of Job, we see it no less than 31 times as Job uh, you know, finds God to be God Almighty in the midst of his trials and his afflictions. Understanding that God is sovereign. Understanding that God is Almighty. Understanding that God is is all-powerful, is a great comfort to us in times of trial and trouble and affliction and hardship. Because if you don't believe that God is sovereign over your situation when you're in the midst of a hardship or affliction, you've got nothing to hold on to. You have no sense of security. See, the most important thing about you personally, on an individual level, the most important thing about you is what you believe about God, what you think about God. Because the choices that you make are shaped by that. In fact, the way that you even feel in the midst of various situations are going to be shaped by the way that you view God. And so for that reason, the way that you see God, your view of God, is actually the most important thing about you. There is nothing about you, not your race, not your gender, not your nationality, not your political party. There is nothing more important about you than the way that you view God. Any views about God or any, any ideas that you have about God which render Him less powerful than He's revealed to be or less sovereign than He's revealed to be in Scripture will hinder your faith and will affect your soul negatively 
in proportion to your degree of error. And so this is a new name for God as far as Abram is concerned. El Shaddai, God Almighty. At least it's, it's the first time that we see it used in Scripture. And here in these first eight verses of this passage, of this chapter, this, this chapter of, of grace and, and covenant promises, we see God's sovereignty reflected in the fact that God says, I will. A total of seven times in the first eight verses. God says, I will, which is stronger than I may. If you're reading the ESV, it says I may a couple times. And I'd say that's not a good translation because it's the same pattern that we see throughout these eight verses. And may is not nearly as certain or as strong as I will. It's not as certain as I will. So God says between verses 1 and 8, He says, I will confirm my covenant between me and you in verse 2. Again in verse 2, He says, I will multiply you greatly. Uh, Looking down at verse 6, he said, "I, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Look at verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Again in verse 8, I will be their God. I will, I will, I will. Is there any degree of uncertainty in any of that? No. These are God's promises. He's saying, this is what I am going to do. This is all God's sovereign initiative. And God is faithful to His promises. He's the one who's going to bless Abram. He's the one who's going to bless Abram's offspring. But where's man's responsibility in this? Where does Abram come in here? What's Abram supposed to do? Does he just sit back and do nothing and receive God's blessings and keep living his life as as he would live his life? We don't see it in this verses, but we're going to see what Abram's response, rightful response, is going to be. We're going to see it in the the coming verses. For now, it's just important that we see that God is essentially saying to Abram, my will and my plans are not contingent upon your perfect faithfulness. It's not contingent upon your action or lack thereof. He doesn't say, I'm going to do this if and only if you'll agree to do this. Yeah, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, only if you do this or that. No, that's not how God operates. God is sovereign. His actions aren't contingent. They don't depend upon anybody or anything. He's going to do, God is going to do what God is going to do. And there's nothing that anybody can do about it. He'll decide in accordance with the counsel of His own sovereign, perfect, holy, righteous will and decree. And it works the same way in the New Testament, under the New Covenant. The work of salvation is the grace of God alone. But when God grants an individual grace unto faith, it's done through the process, through the work of God of regeneration. God is the one who does the work of regeneration, where He he opens the blind man's eyes. He brings the spiritually dead to life. He, he, he redeems those who were born as the spiritual offspring of Satan, unwilling to seek God, unwilling to love God, unwilling to obey God. We read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He's, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Did you catch that? All of this is from God. What part did man have in coming to Christ? What part did man have in being a new creation? What part did man have of seeing the old pass away, the old nature pass away? Paul says you didn't do anything. It is all from God. It is all from God. And it's not that we never play a part in any of our salvation either. There are different aspects of salvation. There's justification, which is God removing us from the penalty of sin. And then there's sanctification. The Christian life where God is working in us to make us more like Christ. And that's where there is some responsibility on our part. That's where God is working with us, in us and with us, to make us more like Christ. The Holy Spirit will dwell within the person in order to bring about a change of desires, in order to bring about a new set of of affections and aspirations, all in order that we would bear good fruit to the glory of Christ. All in order that our lives would be marked by glorifying Christ. Bringing glory to Christ through bearing good fruit. Now one of the things that we see in in this brief passage of, of eight verses is that God gives Abram a new name. He's no longer Abram. We will now refer to him as Abraham. And that is extremely, extremely significant. But before we talk about how significant it is, and it's really, really significant, I want us to wait until the next section uh, to discuss the significance of it, because we're going to see it in the next section. At this point, what we need to understand is that a right understanding of God's sovereignty is crucial for our proper obedience to Him. A right understanding of God's sovereignty is crucial to our proper response to Him. And in Abraham's case, the establishment and the confirmation of the covenant were all God's sovereign work and will, but Abram would have a responsibility. He would have the responsibility, the moral responsibility, to respond in obedience. Let's look at verses 9-14. to And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So my covenant... So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So there's a change of emphasis in these verses. There's a change of uh, of the light. If you, were, if you were to see this on stage, first the light is on God, and in this passage, the light is being shown on man. The first eight verses saw God establish in His sovereignty the covenant with Abraham. It was marked by a repeated, I will, but now it changes to, you shall. I will, 
And now you shall, as God turns the attention to Abraham and what will be required of him in this covenant. God has, in accordance with his own sovereign will, established and confirmed the covenant promises over here, but Abraham will still play a role as well. And here we see God establish the sacrament of circumcision. And of course, the sacrament is a sign of something. For us, our sacraments are uh, our baptism. Uh, That's a sign of something, right? It's a sign of uh, death to self and life in Christ. It's a sign of being washed new. Uh, We also have the Lord's Supper in which we remember the sacrifice that was made on our behalf by Christ. The, the, The sacraments of a covenant are always a picture of the covenant in some way. So this is a sign. It would be a reminder of the covenant that God had established with Abraham. And, and so it would be a reflection of sorts of the covenant. It would be a picture in some way of the covenant. Abraham was to circumcise himself and every male in his household. And we know based on previous chapters that he had quite a few males living in his household. And it's at this point that Abraham might have been thinking, God, you are crazy. God, I, I believe in your promises. I believe what you said that you would do, that, that, that you would do. But the responsibility that you've put on my shoulders here is too much for me to bear. I believe that you are capable of, of doing all things. You're able. You are God. And I know that you've noticed that I'm not. But nothing is impossible for you. And I believe that. But the things that you have instructed me to do, God, seem impossible. And if Abraham knew himself, and I I am sure that he did know himself, he's almost 100 years old here, he would have realized that he was not like God. Unlike God. Abraham knew about himself that he was inclined to be less than faithful. Abraham knew that unlike God, he himself was inclined to be not trustworthy. He knew about himself that he could not always be trusted, that he had a, 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 an inclination to not exactly tell the truth or to take matters into his own hands. He knew these things about himself. In fact, I'd say that everyone who gives an honest assessment of themselves would arrive at these same conclusions that we aren't faithful, we aren't trustworthy. God is faithful and trustworthy, but if it were left to us, everything would fall apart. So maybe, maybe Abram was thinking these things already. Maybe he hadn't thought of them just yet. Either way, God is telling Abraham what would be required of him. And that it would be impossible without the power of God working within him. It would be the grace of God alone that would enable Abraham to do these things, to walk in obedience to the Lord. Now it's no coincidence that it's at this point that God changes Abram's name to Abraham. It's in the context of establishing and confirming his covenant with Abraham. He could have done it sooner. I mean, the covenant was established back in chapter 15, so he could have done it there. He could have done it sooner. He could have done it when he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Or he could have done it later. He could have done it whenever he wanted to, but he chose to do it in this very context where he is establishing and confirming the covenant that he made with Abraham. And we need to take that into account when we're looking at the significance of what he's doing, of what God's doing here in renaming him. 
Now we know that the name Abram means exalted father. And if you think about it, for the first 86 years of his life, that had to be kind of a thorn in his side because the womb of his wife, Sarai, was barren. Imagine a man who had no children being called exalted father. I mean, you can imagine the looks that he got and the kind of jokes that would be told at his expense whenever he would introduce himself. Hi, my name is uh, Exalted Father. Oh, wow, at your age, you must be a blessed man with many children and many grandchildren. How many do you have? Well, none. Really? You're Exalted Father? And, and so that's how the, the jokes would go for years. And I'm sure that it became a point of contention for Abram. It became a, a thorn in his side until he took matters into his own hands and conceived a child with another woman. At which point, his name would have been a reminder of his sin. And so... At that point, at least at that point, when he had a child, when Ishmael was conceived, at least at that point, the jokes would stop. At least they stopped for for 13 years. But now God gives him a new name. Instead of being named Exalted Father, he's now named Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Can you imagine what it would have been like to go home that night? And, and he, you know, he, he comes in and he says to everybody, hey, everyone, gather around. I've got, I just ran into God, and he just spoke to me for the first time in 13 years. And uh, he let me know that my name is no longer Exalted Father. And people would look at themselves, and they'd look around the room, and they'd say, wow, the last time he ran into God was when he sinned. And so has God removed his covenant promises to Abram? At a hundred years old, is it all for nothing? And so Abraham continued, From here on out, I am to be known as father of a multitude at a hundred years old. And his household would struggle to keep a straight face, and they would struggle to contain their laughter. Because from a human perspective, this would have sounded absolutely ridiculous. A 100-year-old man with his 90-year-old wife conceiving a child in their old age, come on. Father of an exalted, uh, father of a, of a multitude. But nothing, nothing is impossible with God. Now, when God added to his name, he added a, a sound to the middle of Abram's name. He added a Abraham, a, a breath. And in the significance of this was, was much more than just. Father of a multitude. It goes much, much further than just the mere meaning of his name. What God actually did was insert the sound of a breath into the middle of Abram's name. Remember that in the Hebrew language, the words for breath and spirit are actually the same. And so for this reason, each breath was seen as a gift from God, from God's Spirit. And so by renaming Abram, Abraham, Ham, God was adding His breath to His name. He was adding His Spirit, the power of His Spirit, to Abraham's name. So between the lines here, we have the answer to Abraham's predicament. How would he do all these things? How was he supposed to be obedient to all the things that God was requiring of him? The same way you and I do. That is, by 
the grace of God, by the power and the presence of the Spirit of God within him. His name was a picture of his reality. His name was a picture of the fact that God had given him all the power, all, all the, the resources he would need to do what God had required. The fact that Abraham needed to obey God didn't imply, didn't infer that Abraham was adding anything to the covenant. In fact, if you think about it, he's not adding anything. He's taking something away here. By cutting away a part of the flesh, there's a message there. It was a picture of the need to cast away, to to renounce all the works of the flesh. And it would symbolize his identification and the identification of his offspring with God and the covenant that God had established with Abraham. It was not just a a, a picture of casting the, 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 the flesh away, though. It was a picture of a spiritual commitment of the heart, the soul, the mind, the will, the strength, everything within a person to obey God. Listen to what, uh, what Moses would say to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 6 to 8. We read this, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 6 to 8, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? So that... You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all His commandments that I commanded you today. So circumcision is the sign of the covenant. You know, kind of like a wedding ring. We, we, we make a covenant when we enter into, uh, into marriage, and a wedding ring is a picture of unending commitment or unending love. But the thing with a ring is that it can be taken off. A ring can be destroyed. A ring can be stolen. It can be tarnished. With circumcision, on the other hand, there is no going back. Once, once, you are, once you do that, there is no going back. Which reminds us that there was one other, maybe fairly significant detail, one, one other in, important thing about circumcision. It involved the organ that Abram had sinned with. It involved what he would need for procreation. He had sinned against God and he tried to fulfill God's promises for God taking matters into his own hands, creating Ishmael with Hagar 13 years earlier. And so in one sense, circumcision for Abraham was also a reminder to depend on God for the fulfillment of the promises that God had made. It's a reminder that God's way is the only way. God's way is the only way. And that's how it was under the Abrahamic covenant. That's the way it is under the new covenant as well. Jesus isn't just a way. Jesus is the way. Definite article. He's not a way. He's not a path. He's not a gate. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through Him. Nobody. No exceptions. It's exclusive. God's way is the only way. There is no other way to be reconciled unto God than by God's grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. Let's continue. Verses 15 to 20 of Genesis chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, 
As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So if you think about this chapter as a whole, God has a new name, at least as far as man's concerned. He's, he's El Shaddai. Abraham has a new name. And now we see that Sarai would also have a new name. Sarah. And the same sound that was inserted into Abraham's name is inserted into Sarah's name. Again, the, the sound of the breath would be in her name. Her name will mean princess. Scholars aren't sure exactly what Sarai means, but Sarah means princess, which is significant because look at what we see in verse 16. There will be kings of peoples that shall come from her. And who gives birth to a king? A princess. The one person in this chapter who who doesn't receive a a, a new name is, is Ishmael. We'll come to that. But Sarah gets a new name. It's the promise, by the way, that God made to Abraham as well. If you look back at verse 6, he promises that kings are going to come through their line. And what's Abraham's response to this? He falls on his face, not in an act of worship, but laughing. He, he, he's, he's, he's busting a gut. Because the idea of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman having a child was hilarious from a human perspective. And yet, despite how ridiculous it was, despite how absurd it might have seemed, God doesn't rebuke him. Abraham believes it. Paul wrote, he believes that God can do what God has said He's going to do. And Paul wrote, some commentary on this part of the Genesis narrative in Romans chapter 4. Listen to what Paul says. He's speaking about Abraham here. He says, In hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So maybe he's laughing because he's imagining what the people of his household, what his wife, what, it, what anybody is going to say when they learn about this promise that God had made. But Abraham believed. And Sarah, who struggled with her faith, would be blessed. The blessings of Abraham would flow into the people he was surrounded by. But Ishmael, not Ishmael, 
Abraham surely knew that his son at 13 years of old, 13 years of age, did not love God. He surely knew that his son did not desire to obey or yield to God. Even at 13 years of age, he was a wild donkey of a boy, about to become a, a wild donkey of a man, as God had foretold in Genesis chapter 16. So he doesn't receive a new name. But he does receive God's promises of blessing and earthly prosperity. He would not be the one to fulfill God's promises though. Instead, God promises that He will bring a child through Sarah's womb. A child to be named after Abraham's response. Laughter. That's what Isaac means. It means laughter. That's what That's the means by which God would fulfill His promises through this child. And Isaac would be His name. Let's wrap this chapter up. Verses 21 to 27. God continues saying, But I will establish My covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. That very day. That's crazy if you think about it. Usually, you know, if you're going to have a surgery, you want to have time to brace yourself. You want to have time to, to mentally prepare yourself. But what we see here is that Abraham's response to God and the promises that God has made is immediate obedience. He, he, if, if it was me, I'd say, let's wait until next month. Let me wrap my mind around this. He, he didn't wait until next month. He didn't wait until next week. He didn't even wait until tomorrow. He goes home and he announces to everyone in his household that all the males, all the men in his household would be circumcised on that very day. Abraham himself included. Listen to me very carefully, friends. Abraham's immediate obedience is a picture of the way to live in close, close, intimate fellowship with God. His response is, is to obey. Not just to obey, but immediately to obey. And we all recognize that obedience to God is difficult. Without the Spirit of God, obedience to God is impossible. But the time to obey God is always right now. The time to obey God is always right now. If you put it off, it's not going to be easier. If you say, I'm going to do it tomorrow because I've got this stuff that I want to do today, it's not going to be easier tomorrow. Because by putting it off, all you're going to do is harden your own heart toward God. And a hardened heart is something that only God can break. So if you think that you can put it off, if you think you can put it off until your deathbed, if you think you can even put it off until tomorrow, don't. That is not the way 
to draw close to God. The way to draw close to God, the way to experience intimate fellowship with God is to obey right now. Right now. That's how you keep your heart close to God. As John MacArthur once said, quote, Obedience is the only validation of your salvation. It is the only possible proof that you really recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. End quote. Obedience isn't optional. Obedience unto God isn't just a suggestion that somebody would make. It is a command. It is what God Himself is worthy of. And when it feels impossible, remember that just like Abraham, the only way that we can do it is by the power of God working within us. The Spirit of God working within us. And that's something that we learn, that we need to learn more and more the longer we walk with the Lord. It's something that's totally contrary to the human fallen condition. To lean on the Lord. To rely on Him. To walk in His ways in in constant obedience to Him. But it's something that is possible in the Spirit. And it involves, that's part of sanctification. Sanctification is about us becoming more like Christ, which means us learning to submit ourselves, to yield ourselves more fully to God's will. Just as God had promised both Abraham and Sarah, kings would come from their line. David was one. When David was king, God established a covenant with him too. He said, Your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. But David died. David eventually got old and he died. And when he did die, the Jews started looking for who would be the fulfillment of of this promise that God had made to David. Hundreds of years later, the prophet Isaiah would give some prophecy that would point toward the answer to this question. Isaiah would say that there was a, a prince of peace who was coming and that his governance would never end. He would establish a government that would be eternal and everlasting. Zechariah prophesied of this king who would come into Jerusalem he, would, he said, Zechariah said in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, that's what we're celebrating today. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus fulfilled these prophecies as He rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, as the people shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Not only did kings come from Sarah and Abram's line, The king of kings came through them. And just as the covenant with Abraham was established through pain and blood, so too Jesus came into Jerusalem to establish the new covenant in pain and by the shedding of His own blood. Have you been reconciled to God 
through the one means by which He has ordained. By faith in Christ. Is your, is your faith in Him settled? Is it secure? Because God has established through Christ, through His blood, an everlasting covenant with those who will place saving faith in Christ, who will repent of any self-righteousness, any right standing that they may feel that they have before God, and will trust exclusively in Jesus Christ for their right standing before God. It's His way. And His way is the only way. And when God makes a person a new creation by grace through faith in Christ, you have a new nature. And the very Spirit of God takes up residence within you, abiding within you, enabling you to obey God. Enabling you to walk in obedience to God. Enabling you to do that which pleases God. By God's grace, through His strength, we have to learn to rely on Him, to trust in Him, and to forsake, to cast away, to renounce the deeds of the flesh. As Christians, we stand among those who received Jesus as their King. We stand among those who have acknowledged on this side of glory that Christ is Lord, that Christ is King. And if you have not done that, I would urge you today to do it because there is no other way. There is one God and there is one mediator between man and God, and that is the Lord Christ Jesus. There is no other way to be at peace with God. There is no other way for you to escape being God's enemy. There is no other way for you to escape His wrath other than to acknowledge Christ is Lord. And Christ is the King of kings. When you recognize God as the sovereign, all-powerful, almighty God who establishes and keeps His covenant promises, you, like Abraham, will be quick to walk in humble obedience to God. And you'll do it not through human effort, not through the deeds of the flesh, but by the Spirit, by His power, dwelling within you, even when it seems laughably impossible. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank You for Your promises for the promises that we have in Christ, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the promise that all who place saving faith in Him will be saved. And so, Father, we look to You and we renounce the deeds of the flesh. We renounce any form of self-righteousness we may have. And we confess to You that we are weak, that we are sinners, that we have no right to claim any entitlements from You other than an entitlement to Your wrath. But we praise You and we glorify You because You showed us mercy. Even though all we deserved was Your wrath, You sent Your Son to take our sins upon Himself and to bear Your wrath against those sins. And in exchange, You decreed in Your sovereign will, Your sovereign goodness to give us through faith 
His righteousness. In order that we could be redeemed, in order that we could be justified, declared innocent before You. In order that we would not be Your enemies, but that we would be Your sons and daughters through adoption, through Your Son. And so we praise You and we thank You for sending Him. We thank You for the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And God, we we pray that You would give us the resolve and the strength to grow in our desire to walk in obedience to You. Help us, Lord, to forsake the deeds of the flesh. Help us to turn away from our sin. Help us to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh in order that Christ alone would be glorified in our obedience unto you. We pray this for his glory, his glory alone, Father. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.